Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org donate and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm in studio today in the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, uh, with several guests, all who have um, worked, come together to work on a beautiful new cookbook called The Immigrant Cookbook. So first in studio, I have Leila Mushabek. She is an associate publisher at Interlink Publishing Group, and she is the editor of this new book, The Immigrant Cookbook, Recipes That Make America Great. And I have several of the contributors with me as well. I have Samantha Senevaratna in studio. Hi, Samantha. Do you prefer Sam? Sam is Sam. Great. Hi, Sam. I have Lauren Chun. Hello. Hi. Hi. And I have Anna Sophia Pelez on the line. Are you there, Anna? I'm here. Hey, how's it going? It's great. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, So Layla made this book come to fruition. She um, was responsible for collecting all of the recipes and curating it and putting it together. So Layla, we're going to start with you, if that's okay. Um, So why don't you tell us a little bit about where, what your background was like, what your upbringing was like, and then how that sort of was maybe like the initial inspiration for um, getting involved in this kind of project? Um, well, I'm the daughter of immigrants. Um, I'm, my mother's English and my father is Palestinian. And they came here in the 70s. Um, and I suppose my kind of connecting with my heritage was something that I've 
done through food, particularly being Palestinian, where so many um, uh, Palestinians are living in diaspora and my relatives have scattered. Food kind of offered a, a more tangible way for me to, to connect. Um, and uh, I, you know, I married an immigrant. My husband is Colombian and he came here uh, in the 80s. And I think it took him about 13 years to get legal status. So this is certainly a cause that is very close to my heart. Um, and I've been an editor, a food editor, um, for I think now nine years or something like that. Um, and I work for Inter Interlink Publishing, which is an independent uh, publishing group in Massachusetts. And uh, we kind of, our mission is really to publish books that will help promote cultural understanding and I think about um, three years ago, um, we published our first uh, kind of charity cookbook project, uh, which was called Soup for Syria by Barbara Abdeni Masad. And uh, it was such a success. Uh, it brought together soup recipes from chefs from around the world, and we raised, raised money for the UNHCR and other food and medical relief programs for Syrian refugees. And... Um, you know, it really sparked our initiative to publish uh, fundraising cookbooks. Um, and so this, that's kind of where the idea initially came from. And we built on that and we published one per year. Uh, and this one is the, the latest. Um, in these kind of times of political disillusionment and... Uh, yeah, like what was the moment that you... Or like what was the event that happened that made you you know, make the decision, like, this is a project that you were going to do and commit to? I mean, I, th I think, I guess it was, in terms of the timeline, it was around the first iteration of the, the Muslim ban. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we, we were having a staff meeting and we were really discussing, you know, w what cause to really focus on. And um, we just, we felt like, um, you know, in this moment of, um, you know, of hostility, particularly surrounding uh, the issue of immigration, we really wanted to honor the wealth and, uh, of that cultural diversity brings our society, and uh, we felt we could do something similar to to the to Soup for Syria to celebrate the vast contribution of immigrants to American food culture, and also raise awareness and funds for the ACLU for their immigrants' rights project. So, um, yeah. So, what's the connection between the cookbook and the ACLU? So um, we will be donating $5 or a minimum of $5 from the sale of each book to the ACLU for, specifically for their Immigrants' Rights Project to, yeah. um, to, you know, to kind of more directly support uh, the, the rights of immigrants. In the right. Country. So there's like a tangible connection between right. this cookbook and mm -hmm. then actually supporting immigrant rights and resettlement efforts. That makes sense. So it's not like you're just buying a pretty cookbook and owning it and like right. thinking about it like you're actually doing something in a really active way. Yeah. So I think, I mean, you know, at Interlink, we've always fo focused on promoting cultural understanding through bringing kind of not just immigrant but international stories to to the American market. But I think this is a way for us to, to make a more direct impact. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's something that is has fueled by kind of the current political climate, um, it's, it's had us all searching for ways to more directly do what we can. Right. And I think, you know, like a nice thing about this cookbook is a lot of people are searching for ways to do something that feels like they're contributing. And this is just like a very, um, like 
easy sort of like accessible thing that you could do. Like you can buy this, you know, you're making a contribution and then, you know, you own something that's beautiful and like you want to cherish and it feels like very, you know, of, of the moment. It's like a very sort of like positive takeaway of this time. Yeah. Um, but you did it in like a remarkably fast time frame. Also, how did you how did you find all the the people that you wanted to reach out to and contribute? And like, how did you turn this around so quickly? Well, I mean, I think you know after the initial the initial idea, we 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 did a lot of research. We did a lot of reading. Um, we read you know magazine features and recent cookbook. Um, uh, releases and we talked to a lot of our food contacts. Um, you know, I think Barbara Abdenima said from Super Syria as well as Alice Waters were really helpful um, in, in kind of giving us recommendations and things like that. We had a lot of support from the chefs that we'd worked with on prior projects. Um, we researched um, kind of statistics about the immigrant populations across the U.S. as well as those who were specifically targeted by recent kind of legislation. And, um, you know, uh, and we wanted to feature mm, a diverse group of people, not just ethnically, but also professionally to kind of show, um, you know, the the real diversity of, of people contributing to our food culture as a, on a whole. So we, we have... Um, you know, uh, kind of restaurant chefs, but also food writers and television hosts. We have food producers uh, like Lauren and uh, food instructors, everyone from James Beard Award winners and Michelin starred restaurant chefs to kind of just people with neighborhood local favorite spots um, and emerging voices in food writing. Um, who, you know, some people we approached just because they were doing really interesting things with food um, in terms of, you know, activism or provoking conversation. Um, yeah. How did you, in terms of, like, curating what recipes would go into the cookbooks, um, help facilitate that? Because, like you said, like, some of the, you know, there's Daniel Balut, like, there's Michelin-starred chefs who don't necessarily make the kind of food that everyone can make at home um, versus, like, there was home cooks. So how did you kind of... Um, figure out like what the what the overall sort of like sentiment of the recipes would be. Well, you know, we wanted it to be something accessible to to the to a home cook and not require a whole lot of um, really uh, sophisticated equipment or anything like that. Um, but it's funny because we asked we asked everyone for for recipes that kind of resonated with them or, or really that they really connected to their immigrant experience and a lot gave family recipes a, the, you know a lot connected their recipes to um, you know childhood memories or some a beloved re um, relative or someone that they learned to cook with and so these are recipes they're, they're home cook cooking they're you know really personal recipes so actually it was not as difficult as you might think yeah um, well, let's hear from some of the contributors. So we have Anna on the line. Hello. Mm -hmm. Hey. Hello. Yeah. So Anna's the author of the Cuban Table Cookbook, and mm -hmm. she has the blog Hungry Sophia, which is delicious looking. Um, yes, thank Anna's, you. <laughs> Anna's in Miami right now <laughs> calling in, and she was nominated for the James Beard Award in 2015. Um, so Anna, why don't you tell us about your recipe, which is a cornmeal pudding? <laughs> Um, well, I, you know, while I was researching the Cuban table, it came up often that people, we, we call it harina, so cornmeal is harina. They would always kind of cite it as like this guilty pleasure. They would say like, oh, when we first came from Cuba, this is what we, this is the only thing we could have. This is the only thing that we, you know, 
that they really got us through this, this period, and I would hear it from a lot of people. And it was something that I had growing up, and I loved it. What um, was, yeah, wh- oh. where, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Miami. Okay. So I grew up in Miami and lived along to, for 22 years in New York. So I feel like I reconnected with my own immigrant kitchen um, in, in New York City, trying to have all the things that I had growing up. And that's when I started researching the book. Yeah, I mean, I read that your family emigrated from Cuba and, like, wasn't able to take, you know, most of their worldly possessions with them. Like, what was your sort of understanding of, like, your parents' background growing up? And then how was food a way for you to, you know, reintroduce your your culture? Um, You know, I think it was everybody, I think, grew up who grew up, you know, Cuban-American born here, um, heard about the one suitcase, the suitcase that they were allowed to bring in. There was always a sense of, like you know, what they decided, what, how they could decide what to, what to bring. So I always, I, you know, I always connected with people who thought to bring cookbooks, who thought to bring these family recipes. Um, so it was, always, it was always important, and every time it was presented to me, a family recipe, it was very much about this is what we had in Cuba, this is what, you know, I'm sharing with you now. And it was funny because I had kind of always taken it for granted that living in Miami, you're in the tropics, you're surrounded by Cuban restaurants and Cuban markets, that this was something that was always here, and it wasn't until researching, um, when I really started researching, you know, my own food culture, that I realized that it was fairly recent for them. It was it was a process of reintroducing these products and reintroducing these ingredients, things, being able to have them again. So their excitement wasn't just sharing it with me. It was for them to be able to make it, for them to be able to find these things again, and for them to have that bit of their culture. So that was very much, I think part of what made it special for me growing up was that it was this process that they were going through that I didn't, I didn't appreciate until I was much older. Did your parents bring cookbooks over to the United States with them when they came? My parents did, and my parents came as teenagers. Oh, I see. Um, my, my, my grandparents did bring some family recipes with them, and then any you would have, if I found something on a, you know, scratched out on a piece of paper, it became like, you know, a family heirloom for me. Like, the, the very personal objects that they did manage to bring, however unimportant they might seem if you have, you know, if, you know, think about the things that you have, there was always something very personal attached to them that made them important. And that, I think, recipes were definitely fell into that category. Yeah. Um, so the United States' relationship with Cuba has changed under the Trump mm-hmm. administration. Um, mm-hmm. what's, yeah, like, what, how, does, how does that feel as the daughter of Cubans? Um, you know, it's, it's difficult. I felt like, you know, it, it's something that's been very, very present um, in, you know, the months as we, as we all watch, this, you know, what's, what's developed. Um, you know, it just feels like it was this natural evolution, this natural opening, and it feels very, very unnatural, very inorganic to, to, turn, that, to turn the clock back. Um, for better or worse, we were going forward, and we were seeing what what was going to happen next. Um, and it's frustrating to see, you know, those those advances just just erased. But you know, we're not alone, and we, you know, we're we're just it's just one part of what we've been, you know, experiencing the last year of where there's a lot of a lot of momentum, forward motion that was going, you know, that we were all seeing the benefits of, and we see it kind of, you know dissolving and and it's, it's a, we are also, we're all trying to hold on to you know to, to something and then to try and just you know hold the line and and keep going forward under very difficult circumstances so cuban cuban americans are not alone in that i think no a lot it's of just people can absolutely have a, are ha- right the way you described um the situation with cuba is you know i think just like a microcosm of the way the 
everyone who doesn't support the the policy that has changed has felt in general that we were moving forward and now we're moving backwards. So, mm-hmm. yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, well, Anna, thank you so much for calling in. We're going to take a quick commercial break and then we'll be back to hear from Lauren and Sam. So stay with us. Yeah. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts of the seed, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The endosperm is the main energy storage unit of the seed. That's where the growing plant gets its energy before it can start photosynthesizing and making its own. It makes up a huge portion of the grain, about 83%, and it's the main source that's used for white flour. When you make white flour, you get rid of the germ and the bran and just have the white endosperm left. It contains almost all the carbohydrates. It also contains protein and iron and some of the other B vitamins as well. It's kind of what you classically think of when you're thinking of flour. So all that's there when you're milling with whole grains, but when you mill with whole grains, you also get the bran, which is the kind of roughage and gives that, that's what gives that, that kind of color to it. Also gives you extra fiber that uh, helps you to be regular. And you also get the germ, which adds the fat and the flavor, which we all like from whole grains. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Left to right outside of You're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. We've been talking about the immigrant cookbook, Recipes That Make America Great. Um, so we heard from Layla Mushabek. She's the editor of this new book. And I didn't say when it comes out. Or you didn't say when it comes out either, Layla. Why don't you tell us when it comes out? Uh, it's it will, uh, We're taking pre-orders now, but uh, they'll ship in the next week or so. Uh, officially, it's out December 15th. Excellent. Okay, great. Um, so we heard from Anna Sophia Pelez, who has a, a cornmeal pudding from Cuba in the book. Um, Lauren Chun, hello. Hello. So you're one of the contributors. You wrote about stuffed cabbage kimchi from South Korea. Yes. Um, Tell us about that. So it would be called pogi kimchi, which really is referencing the... Uh, the special, the most special, I guess, um, or famous uh, kimchi that's made annually in this uh, Kim Jong um, tradition, which is basically the end of the cabbage harvest that happens in, traditionally in um, about November. And um, as a kid, I was probably about six or seven years old, I remember one of my earliest memories and connection to food with my um, living with my grandmother and and being a part of this Kim Jong, I call it a kimchi block party because it's literally, <laughs> um, I think, and as a kid, it was uh, like, and it consists of, it's like a three-day affair where one day is just devoted to brining the cabbage and cleaning it, and the second day is stuffing it, and then the third day is like literally putting it in these four feet, uh, 40-gallon like um, clay earthen pots that we, you'd, somebody would, dig out and put in in the dirt you know in the backyard um and it was it was usually about you'd probably have about several families that would get get together so it could be neighbors you know in-laws your mother it's like you know and it's a whole like literally like a three-day affair and putting up something like 40 or 50 like up to 50 heads of cabbage per family so it would be 
the idea that you're making a lot of kimchi to, to um, put away for the winter months when you didn't have any kind of access to really fresh vegetables. So this is, you know, before the kind of, you know, distribution and um, vegetables and whatnot, supermarkets that we have now, but really a seasonal rite of passage for just, you know, for winter months to put away this kimchi and have it for really keep you your family fed with kimchi on the table every every day yeah well speaking of your family you are the founder of mother-in-law's kimchi yes and the author of the kimchi cookbook um so what is what does mother-in-law's kimchi mean (laughs) i mean you kind of alluded to and you're describing the process there yes your mother-in-law has a very significant role in the korean culture when it comes to food so on the one hand um I mean, I named my uh, kimchi company Mother-in-Law's because as a reference uh, to my mother's restaurant in in Southern California that she's had for 30 years. Uh, And so in that, there's a reference to that, a mother-in-law's house where she would keep all the most delicious dishes as as a part of a dowry and as a part of a way to like make sure that she would feed her son-in-law so that he would take good care of uh, her, her daughter. And so, um, so there's that reference. And then there is, um, mother-in-law's reference in the, uh, as, as a woman, when you marry into the husband's family, that you learn how to make kimchi, which is the most important dish uh, in the style of his family. So you would learn the kimchi dishes or, or the tradition through this kimjang activity, which is really once a, once a year, but like, cause every family has their own slightly Variants like everyone has a apple pie recipe or some secret, uh, you know, family recipe. So you would learn the kimchi secrets or cooking style from your mother-in-law as well. well okay, so what was your family's signature kimchi style? I don't know. It was really delicious, <laughs> you know. But it's really, um, you know, I think it, it, it. There was always a discussion as, oh, well, because my maternal grandmother is from the north. She had a northern style sensibility of making kimchi, which, you know, might have been like less seafood, uh, you know, where if you come from the south, you might use more pungent seafood and oysters and things like that. Um, in the north, they had less access to seafood, so you maybe use beef stock or other sort of um, ways to kind of flavor that paste or that, that seasoning. Yeah, on. exactly. So it was whatever you had on hand. I mean, it was really, you know, um, so it's really interesting because I think that every family has, you know, their own secret yeah. recipe. That'll did be you, next book. Did you learn? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, did you learn how to make kimchi from your grandmother, you said? I, I mean, that was my earliest memory uh, of of uh, cooking and that was connection. Was that in South Korea? Yes, in, in Seoul, Korea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so when I decided um, to start this company and I made my first batch, you know, in the kitchen and just like, and there's something about when you make something like that, you know, on your own versus I know my mother's made kimchi, you know, while when I immigrated and we were eight years, I was eight years old and, you know, even in our little one bedroom apartment or whatever in the sink container, she was always making kimchi. But the kind of connection that I had with it when I was making it really on my own and my own terms. And I think with, you know, just setting out this sort of the unknown of starting a business, it became really this very profound moment and kind of really uh, the aromas really just 
got me to really thinking about, you know, that childhood, that powerful, you know, childhood memory and that connection to food. Yeah. In a way that hadn't, I hadn't ever occurred before. What made you want to start the company? Was it because you couldn't find like authentic kimchi to your standards? Um, It was really, you know, I had always been really interested in food and hence, you know, my mother has had the Korean restaurant for such a long time. Um, I knew I didn't want to open another restaurant, but uh, I wanted to find my own voice in food, and I didn't really know what that was. So I spent a, a long time, probably, you know, from um, you know working in a wine magazine and working in the wine business, and um, and having worked at French restaurants and done a whole bunch of things that really had no connection for me. I thought to Korea or to Korean food, uh, and so. I think it was about the time, about you know, nine, ten years ago, and I had lost my last corporate job through that downturn in the economy. And I really thought about what really I wanted to do, and I really always thought that well, I might you know have a wine shop or something. But I'm so interested in wine, and I had this epiphany having coffee with someone and thinking, you know, I think it's just really, um, you know, there was a lot of interesting things going on. I think really. I, I also have to reference the, 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 I think, there was the Korean taco truck happening. There was, you know, uh, momofuku and people really kind of awareness for these kind of Korean flavors, but in a kind of a fusion kind right. of way, an accessible way. And I just really wanted to be able to share this epiphany I had about kimchi and that it is um, people's lack of understanding of kimchi as a, fermented uh, beauty of fermentation and, and, and handcrafted product, much like beer and winemaking and cheese making, and that literally kimchi is, is a live living product that just, you know, it kind of it tastes better as it ages. I mean, a good kimchi. So um, I always kind of tell people, well, I know it's, it's like when you see all these kimchi, they all look kind of like they look like kimchi. And I say, well, it's kind of like when you buy bottle of red wine like there's a difference between that $20 and then there's that $5 but they taste different because they've been treated and made differently and each one is kind of individually different and they take on its own sort of personality so yeah um, so I really kind of set out with this mission to say I want to have uh, I want to have the first kimchi at Dean and DeLuca and you know two months after I launched like there it was it just it happened that's incredible. So, yes. Well, I mean, tasting your kimchi did give me that understanding and that, you know, that education of what artisanal food, you know, just um, understanding like a fermented food in that way, how there really is a drastic difference between going to your like, you know, general, you know, any old like Koreatown spot. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but there is, you know, there is an elevated way that, you know, your palate is, is introduced to those foods. Um, yeah, after tasting the difference. Yeah, and I think that that's what um, is really nice. Also, specifically about this recipe, about the keeping the stuffed cabbage, this whole pieces of cabbage uh, or halves. And while researching for the for the cookbook, I really you know had this true understanding of how you cut the cabbage and how you keep pieces whole. Really slow the fermentation. Uh, much like winemaking, you want the fermentation to go slowly and, and they de- develop deeper flavors. Um, I've just really enjoyed being able to share that sort of um, knowledge with folks. And, you know, I think for the cookbook, it's really, 
Nothing gives me greater joy than getting, you know, uh, some email or someone reaching out and saying, oh, I make kimchi now, and it's yeah. really part of my family's diet, and we feel so good, and it's really a health food. And, um, it's so, a health food that tastes good, too. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I love the story about that it's such a modest food, mm-hmm. and that fermentation is, like, making kimchi is, like, not hard, and that was, like, something that I wanted to really get people to understand is that it's really like something you could create your own, create your own kimchi family traditions because it's really some salt brining, you know, vegetable and it's very, very accessible. So, and I think that that's really part of of much of, you know, probably many immigrants. It's it's this modest food with a lot of flavor and history and it's very practical Mm -hmm. um, because you don't need a lot of ingredients to, to make it. Yeah, um, it's not an expensive food. To right, make. right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Samantha Senavaratna. <laughs> Perfect. Um, okay. <laughs> She's a food stylist and the author of Sugar and Spice and a 2016 James Beard Award nominee, which is amazing. Thank you. Um, so your recipe is True Love Cake from Sri Lanka. <laughs> I've never heard of True Love Cake before seeing this book. But it's fine. I'm I'm just thinking about kimchi right now. It's like the only thing I know. On my it's brain. a big <laughs> switch. I'm sorry. That was, there was no good segue from kimchi <laughs> no. to cake. Um, yeah, the the recipe I included. I actually have two in my own book. One is love cake, and one is true love cake. Love cake is in the immigrant cookbook. It's a traditional um, recipe. It's when I would go back to my parents are from Sri Lanka. I was born here, um, and when we went back to Sri Lanka, this cake is ubiquitous. It's at every Bakery. It's offered for tea time. Anytime you go to anybody's house, my grandmother would make it. It was basically everywhere all the time. Um, True Love Cake is a modification I sort of did as a um, Americanized layer cake version. But um, the one in the book has coarse semolina and cashews and tons of spices and honey and rose water and almond and lemon. It basically has every flavor everything delicious you can think of it's except it's, kimchi yeah oh kimchi though <laughs> um it's kind of a it's like a bomb of flavor and aroma so it's a good one any idea why it's called love cake that you know i was desperate to figure that out yeah. when i wrote about it and i you know i don't know i don't know and i i love the name because it actually i did figure out what i think might have happened is that at some point, the Portuguese were in Sri Lanka. This is in 1400s or so when they came to Sri Lanka. And supposedly, they brought their European ways of making cake to the island. And then the people in Sri Lanka sort of took that cake and modified it for their own tastes and their own ingredients. So it started to include cashews, which are grown in Sri Lanka, and cinnamon, which grows in Sri Lanka, and cardamom and things like that. So they sort of modified it to their specifications. And I... While the Portuguese coming to Sri Lanka wasn't necessarily a um, happy arrangement for everybody mm-hmm. involved, um, it still sort of tells a, a story of evolution, right, and a story of people coming together and making food. And I think that's sort of relevant right now, and that's why I still eat it, and I still make it for people here. And, you know, it's it's always a story of mixing, right? Yeah. It's even even my family... It's it's mixing back in Sri Lanka. It's mixing here. It's everybody comes together to make America. Maybe right? there was so, like a 
Sri Lankan person and a Portuguese person who like made this cake together and fell <laughs> and in fell love. in love. I know. <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely? I know. I yeah. just I oh. love that that it's called love cake. It just feels appropriate. I loved it right away as soon as I read it, <laughs> even though I didn't really know what it was. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So when did you start to make Sri Lankan food? Um, it's funny you ask because I I am not a fantastic cook of Sri Lankan food. My mother mm. is a great cook. My father's a great cook. My grandmother was incredible. Um, I, because we ate it so much when I was a kid, you know, it was kind of like, oh, we're having Sri Lankan food again. Yeah. Um, I never was that interested in cooking it myself. And I was way more interested in baking eclairs and croissant and, you know, learning how to make French pastry and layer cakes and things like that, like an American. Um, so it took me a while to get back into Sri Lankan food. Um, yeah, it took me a while, but I so I don't cook that much Sri Lankan food to be honest. I, I I stick mostly to sweets and sort of a conglomerate of all my background and learning. But I did spend a lot of time in the kitchen with my grandmother when I was little, like like a lot of people do, just watching her and learning about who she was, more about more about her than the food itself. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I mean, we've, I've had a lot of people on the show say something really similar that. Um, you know, growing up in an immigrant household, it was sort of like their natural reaction to want to assimilate and mm-hmm. become, you know, more American through like their culinary pursuits. And then they got to a certain point in their life where they started to feel really nostalgic for where they came from. And like the obvious way to connect was to start discovering their heritage through food. That's exactly and that right. was like a really fulfilling experience and probably like opened up or for the most part, like opened up a whole new chapter in their careers when mm-hmm. they really started to pursue that in a deep way. I would like one day, I think I would like to write a Sri Lankan cookbook, but um, of all Sri Lankan food, because I think it's it's special and people don't really know that much about it. People know about Indian food. People know about, I think it's sort of a combination of Indian food and Thai food and Malaysian food. It sort of has some good elements from all of those wonderful places, but it's it's special and unique and there's not, people don't talk about it very much. You're right. And I mean, even in New York, where there's so many different kinds of restaurants and foods, like I think I've had Sri Lankan maybe once. Really? Well, that's more than a lot of people, so that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I really like food. Yeah. (laughs) Like more than the average person, I think. Well, how did you choose this recipe specifically for the cookbook? For the book? Well, it just sort of seemed to speak to the cause and the sort of overall, I know, spirit of the book, sort of a mix of cultures and a mix of flavors um and it's important to me because it was one of the few things like you know one of the things i cooked with my grandmother early yeah and sort of it felt it feels like home it, it's just a, it's a good one what's been your reaction to the to the past year um hearing all the different kind of anti-immigration rhetoric that's been circulating uh how can, I mean, heartbroken. It's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I think about it because my family, I was born here, but my parents came in 69. And when they came, it would, there was an invitation out for, my dad is a physician, and there was basically an invitation out to Asian doctors to come to the United States to work because they needed, they needed them here. Um, and, you know, and the country is better for it. So, yeah. you know, I, I, it, it makes no sense, you know. It just makes no sense. Why? Why wouldn't you invite people who could make your country stronger and, and better? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. 
Well, Layla, I I love I love the name of the book, but I really love the recipes that make America great. <laughs> like as soon as I saw that, I was like, "Yep, that's exactly right." <laughs> like it's just I love that it's just so front and center and bold in that way. Yeah, I mean it's it's probably the most directly um, provocative reference to the current administration in the book, actually. Um, we, I kind of don't view the book as political or even just only a reaction to the current climate. Um, yeah, I mean, you touch on it in the intro, but then it's it's about the food. Yeah, it's about the food. And the um, stories. You know, it, it's, um, it's kind of, we wanted to focus on celebrating the many faces and flavors of American food culture. Um, and ethnic diversity has been a really a fundamental strength uh, to this country's like way before the 2016 election. So, um, you know, um, we kind of just, I felt like the, the subtitle reclaims the sentiment Mm -hmm. more than, more than, but obviously, you know, we, we couldn't resist the, the, nor should you, the the, the, the jab. So good. I, you know, our, our president doesn't hold back on jabs. Right. (laughs) Why should we, um, well tell us, well, you know, I actually wanted to ask you too before we, we wrap up, like now that the book is a book and um, it's going to be available to be purchased, how do you feel like seeing it and holding it in the flesh? Is it everything that you hoped and dreamed it would be? Oh, so much more. It's so mm-hmm. exciting to see it as a book. And just to, I mean, it's incredible because I think, um, you know, you it brings together such a diverse range of cuisines and vo- voices, and offers this ama- offers an amazing opportunity to learn about other cultures that might not be familiar to you. But there's also these kind of strands of um, of kind of uh, of like commonality of th- these these common themes that run through a lot of the if you read the recipes and, and the stories next to each other and um, you mentioned how you connect uh, Sam you mentioned how you connect kind of food and home and that is so evident in so many people's stories um, in the book and so I, I think that there's an incredibly special kind of unifying aspect to the book that that um, you know just flipping through it it, it, it kind of hit me even stronger than working on it. I yeah. can kind of take this step back and look at as look at it as a collection. Um, so I'm really excited. Yeah, it's a beautiful collection, and you should be very proud, and you should all be very proud to be a part of it. Um, tell us where we can find more about it and where we can buy it. Uh, you can um, order through the website, which is uh, www.immigrantcookbook.net, um, or um, you know wherever you buy your books wherever fine books are sold yeah <laughs> great um the book again is the immigrant cookbook recipes that make america great edited by Leila mushebek and some of the contributors are with me today so thank you so much to all of you lauren chan anna sofia Pelez, and samantha senavaratna thank you so much for sharing your stories and i'm so excited to have this book thank you all for listening and for making season two um just as wonderful as season one and interesting and vibrant and delicious and i'm really excited for next season so everyone have happy safe healthy holidays and we'll see you back in the new year thanks 
for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.